The CDC says fully vaccinated people can largely forgo the masks. That's great news for those craving the normalcy of life before the pandemic. But there's no avoiding seasonal allergies, though, which are in full bloom here in the capital region. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. She is now the number three Republican official in a very closely divided uh, legislative chamber. We'll talk to Vancouver-based investigative journalist Sarah Berman about her new book on the Nexium saga. They wanted to help people around them achieve their goals. That was the reason why they joined, not to become branded. We'll say goodbye to one of our intrepid Hearst fellows. What I'll take away from Albany is like how amazing the people are here, um, how rich the history is in the city, and how rich of a place this is for journalism. And sports writer Tim Wilkin breaks down the controversy gripping the horse racing world this season. And I feel for the poor horse, he didn't do anything wrong. He, he right. did nothing wrong. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's join Times Union editor Casey Seiler for a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here once again with Casey Seiler, Times Union editor. Uh, We're going to talk about the top headlines. We'll start with upstate Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. What's the latest there with her bid to take more power in the House? Well, it succeeded. (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it. She is now the number three Republican official in a very closely divided uh, legislative chamber. She now holds the post of conference chair after the ouster earlier this week of Liz Cheney. Stefanik, who uh, voted against the certification of the Electoral College based on a number of arguments that have been rejected by the courts and debunked by fact checkers of pretty much every uh, ideological hue, is now in this powerful position, leading to uh, analysis and commentary from those on both the left and the right that the Republican Party is now fully in thrall to President Trump. All right. Well, Emily Munson and our Capitol Bureau team will be following that very closely. Uh, Back home in New York here, Governor Andrew Cuomo made some comments at a press conference in the Bronx this week that drew a lot of criticism. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. If you want an example of why the governor for so long was avoiding taking live questions from reporters at press conferences, this was a, a pretty good argument for why perhaps he shouldn't have been, though, of course, he should have been. He was asked about the definition of sexual harassment and whether the remarks he made fell into that that definition. And Cuomo basically said, nope, he didn't think so. These were remarks, of course, that he had apologized for previously, 
But in this press conference on Thursday, he basically said, well, I was apologizing, but not because I think I think I did anything wrong, but because I know that these remarks, you know, upset um, the now several women who who heard them or were um, the recipients of some of his actions, such as, you know, unwanted, unbidden kisses. And he said, quote, harassment is not making someone feel uncomfortable. That is not harassment. If I just made you feel uncomfortable, that is not harassment. That is you feeling uncomfortable. Now, lawyers who are experts in sexual harassment and, you know, workplace misconduct law called the governor out and said that is an absolutely ridiculous definition of what a current state law says about sexual harassment. If it was only the intent of the alleged wrongdoer uh, that was taken into account when considering whether or not something was sexual harassment, virtually nothing would be sexual harassment because the person accused could simply say, oh, I didn't mean it that way. Hey, I'm sorry if you uh, took it in a certain way. Now, it's true there is a legal standard for harassment. It, it, you know, it can't, for example, just be someone saying, hey, nice earrings. But if that remark is in the context of an ongoing series of uninvited, uh, obnoxious comments about, you know, someone's personal appearance, or if the comment is, I like those earrings, they make me want to jump you, then obviously that is something very different. And the comments that Cuomo is alleged to have made definitely cross the line beyond what anyone, any reasonable person would consider to be within the bounds. Many of the women who have made allegations against him and their attorneys uh, came out uh, both barrels against him on Thursday. All right. Well, more on that on our Capital Confidential blog and our Capital Confidential podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, was hacked last week. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Malware, uh, a little bit more than a week ago, has shut down all of the internal communication systems for RPI which is, I guess, ironic is not the right adjective, but of course, RPI is a leading engineering school. So the fact that malware has um, brought it to this pass is um, maybe not ironic, but there you go. Um, But what it means is that, of course, with so many campus processes now virtual, if those systems are shut down, do you even have an operative campus? And the conclusion that RPI has come to is basically, well, not right now. If you go to RPI's website right now, it notes all final exams and submissions, that is term papers, project reports scheduled or due this week are canceled. Grading policies will be modified to accommodate this change. So What that means is that students have effectively gotten out of final projects and final exams. Moving on to a uh, somewhat of a hallmark of the Albany skyline. Uh, It's iconic and a little decrepit. The Central Warehouse Building is up for auction. Can you tell us more about what's going on there? (laughs) I would take issue with your description of Central Warehouse being only a little decrepit. It is completely decrepit, but it is built like, I almost said built like a brick house, but it's not. It's built like a concrete block. It was a refrigeration warehouse 
um, which means that the walls are very thick. I mean, it, it could probably stand up to a, a fair-sized nuclear blast if it, if it didn't land too close. But yeah, it is it is probably the most prominent eyesore in uh, certainly in Albany, maybe in the entirety of the capital region. And the fact that it is right next to 787, um, you know, a major thoroughfare for just about anybody coming into town from the north uh, makes it even worse. Ownership has been handed to a number of people over the years with, you know, promises or at least hopes to to develop it, turn it into something. Uh, none of those have come to pass. And the county is um, citing more than 10 years of unpaid taxes that towed up to about half a million dollars, has put the building up for auction and is accepting bids despite the fact that the county doesn't hold clear title to it. But um, what they're going to attempt to do, as Chris Churchill describes, is essentially use this very large unpaid tax bill to pass ownership from the current owner to one that would be designated by the county without the county essentially taking on the liability that comes with ownership of the property. So it's a it's an interesting uh, tactic. We will see if it gets tangled up in the courts, but boy, it's a big, ugly building. And in in a district, the warehouse district, that is seeing significant you know, restoration of excitement and investment. It's turned into uh, a bar and restaurant scene. But basically, you've got this this humongous eyesore between downtown and all of this cool new development. If you want to get an up-close look at said eyesore, head over to timesunion.com. Our photographer, Will Waldron, took amazing drone footage right up close uh, to the building. It's really interesting to watch. All right, one last thing I wanted to point out this uh, this week in a kind of dose of a long overdue dose of normalcy, it feels uh, county fairs are coming back this summer. What's the story there? Yeah, after being pretty much completely shut down last summer, um, we now have them back on the schedule starting uh, in late July, really getting hot and heavy all through August, but then into September, you know, probably the biggest one around here might be the Altamont Fair, which is August 17th through 22nd. They posted on Facebook, while we are still waiting to find out what this summer is going to bring, <laughs> we are hopeful that we will come back stronger than ever, which of course is is a quote that pretty much sums up the way that just about everyone feels, especially event producers. The producers of many of these fairs, really all of these fairs, are waiting for guidance from the state. But of course, you have the governor saying that things like pools and beaches are are expected to be open or that um, state officials are hoping they will be open to full capacity by July. So um, that's a good indication that local fairs will be open as well. The state fair, of course, is uh, is being trumpeted as a, a major sign of, you know, the, the recovery and, and rebirth of leisure time. And uh, we should also note that Jazz Fest at Saratoga Performing Arts Center uh, has announced that it will be live again this year, which is, uh, which is another big deal for anyone who's a fan of, of hearing uh, music outdoors and specifically a, a fan of Jazz Fest. That is exciting news. I can't wait for the summer. All right, Casey, thank you so much for joining us and we'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. 
As always, you can read more about all the stories and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. It's just a pure state of being. The now-convicted Nexium ringleader Keith Ranieri is in federal prison most likely for the rest of his life. High-ranking members of his inner circle still await sentence hearing dates, and a small faction of former members remain loyal to him as he attempts to clear his name on appeal. So one would say authenticity is being as you are and expressing as you are. The ongoing Nexium saga is the focus of former Vice senior editor and Vancouver-based investigative reporter Sarah Berman's new book, Don't Call It a Cult. In her book, she takes a three-part dive into the rise of Nexium, into its leader's uncanny ability to avoid legal consequences, and the federal probe that inevitably brought it all crashing down. Berman recently talked to Times Union Cops and Courts reporter Rob Gavin about the book on a recent episode of our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial. Here's a part of that conversation. Sarah, what what can you tell me about this book? Don't call it a cult. What made you want to write the book? What attracted you to it? My draw to Nexium really was sparked by my realization that I had sort of friends and colleagues who were pretty closely associated, who had taken the classes, you know, who maybe had a roommate who moved to Albany, or, you know, who went to high school with someone like Nikki Klein, who to this day remains loyal to Keith Raniere. Because this sort of cohort of people were such progressive, left-leaning, you know, maybe bike-riding type vegetarian Vancouverites, I wanted to really square that with this branding scheme and this blackmail scheme and, you know, all the dark things that sort of came out at trial. So those things hadn't quite come out yet, but I was already just trying to solve this riddle of how did this cohort of people become involved in something that got so dark? And that really motivated me because it seemed so upside down. And I had so many upside down moments with Nexium. And just to touch on the title a little bit, for the record, I don't mind if anybody calls Nexium a cult. I think um, experts who have reviewed it see all, all the red flags. It checks off all the boxes. But because Nexium was sort of this full of misdirection and gaslighting and, you know, and nobody who joined ever thought it was a cult. And in fact, everybody, you know, strongly denied that right up until the end. You know, even when I first met Sarah Edmondson, she was freshly out in October 2017, and she was scared to call Nexium a cult at that time. She thought she could potentially face legal uh, backlash. She was already, you know, being chased. Uh, <laughs> uh, Claire Bronfman had flown out here to Vancouver to try and press charges against her. This was a way that Nexium intimidated people. We all know about the uh, legal hell on the civil side that people face. But you're absolutely right that in the case of Sarah Edmondson, trying to get criminal charges, and there were some others there too. It was not unprecedented for that to happen, right? That had happened to previous members as well. So yeah, that was my introduction, my first upside down moment, first of many, where, you know, something seemed off. I didn't understand why she couldn't 
just come out and say, okay, yes, it was a cult. You know, we wore sashes, we bowed to our leader who we called Vanguard, our diets and sleep were all controlled. I think that just really sets the tone for this book where, you know, you're sort of exposed to different layers of, of secrecy and deception. Um, and it becomes, I guess, like that frog in a in water that slowly, slowly turns up the heat. And then by the end, you've, you've got the full Nexium sort of experience, the deepest and the darkest parts. And yeah, I kind of thought you needed all that space. You needed 300 pages to really get there to the point where you can understand what it looked like from the inside because they were idealists. They wanted to make a difference. They wanted to help people around them achieve their goals. That was the reason why they joined, not to become branded. I think one of the things I noticed about your book in the beginning is, is it's very cool that you it's dedicated to women who change their minds. And I think what this book really does a good job, too, is it's like this is the first book that really gives you the kitchen sink, that really gives you an outsider's perspective, someone who's familiar with the case, but wasn't inside. There isn't this. This was what happened to me when I was in it. This is someone who looked at it very closely and was able to just kind of talk to a huge number of people. I mean, everybody from Sarah Edmondson, you spoke to Dennis Yusko. Um, yes, a favorite among journalists, I must say. So all my, you know, colleagues in Vancouver are like, man, I love Dennis Yusko. He's great. That's great. What you've done is really provided a huge like kitchen sink approach. But within that, you also, what I really like is like, you show how like Sarah Edmondson tried to basically pitch it to you as she tried to sell you on Nexium. What was that like? So that was so important for me to understand what it looked like from the ground, you know, going into it. And I didn't expect it actually to come across as so gentle. I expected sort of a hard sell um, and maybe really intense pressure tactics maybe for her to pounce on my insecurities, right? I was sort of feeding her my personal insecurities, ho almost hoping that she would take a more aggressive approach to sort of stripping me down and saying, you really need to work on this. But that didn't come until much later. So she actually just made it sound like a gentle chat between friends. She talked about what a blue sky scenario would look like if I had been able to address all of what I thought my deficiencies might be and, you know, really resolved my inability to commit all these sort of light growth themes that I was bringing up and really imagine that fantasy future for myself. And then she sort of goes, and what do you think that pattern costs you? This, you know, inability to commit. And she made me come up with a number, like in dollars. And it turned out, I mean, I just pulled $10,000 out of the air. And she goes, well, great, because our program only costs $3,000. <laughs> that is interesting. Did, did you hear that pitch? And did, did it sound like something intriguing to you? I, I know, obviously, you didn't. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have gone just off of that pitch, but I could see it. I could see and feel sort of what that was like. And I did um, sort of come to the conclusion that someone who is prone to fantasy and, you know, is moved by visual 
in kinetic images would would sort of be drawn to that. Um, I could totally see how it could sort of get somebody in the door, get somebody to try something new. You know, like there's lots of people in Vancouver and around the world who, who want new experiences, who want to try maybe even extreme things, right? And so I understood that mentality, you know, having been someone who as a, you know, in my early 20s did a bunch of kind of extreme or edgy things, you know, that really did sort of speak to me. But to go back to something you said earlier, in terms of the kitchen sink perspective, I think there was just so, so much that people like Sarah Edmondson just didn't know. There was so much that she learned after the trial because so many things were just hidden and obscured. Just secrets were this weapon, essentially, in, in the hands of Ranieri and his followers. So I think you need it to sort of wait uh, even until the sentencing, there were still new revelations revealed in the victim impact statements. Those were news to even the most, you know, loyal and connected followers. So I hope that people do get, get more perspective, not just on, yeah, the experiences of people from the inside, but also the structure of it, how it worked, how the manipulation tactics got somebody to, you know, changed their opinions over a period of years, right? Like it was a slow oh, yeah. reprogramming process that, that's actually similar to, you know, like re-education camps, you know, right? Like Robert J. Lifton, he studied prisoners of war who had come back from Korea in the 50s and, and identified these eight criteria uh, for thought reform. And psychologists who studied this program, like the self-help classes itself, found these eight criteria. So really powerful military grade stuff. So yeah, I wanted to sort of peel back the layers and show show that structure and, and that process as well. To hear more of this conversation, check out our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. After the break, we say goodbye to one of our Hearst fellows, and we'll get the latest on the scandal rocking the Triple Crown circuit. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Reporter Eduardo Medina joined the Times Union as a Hearst Fellow last August. Since then, he's been working tirelessly to embed himself within the community and tell stories during arguably the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. The body of work he's produced under these abnormal and difficult circumstances stands out, however, for its authentic narrative quality. 
The fellowship has come to an end, though, and Eduardo will be moving on to another fellowship in New York. But before he left, I caught up with him to take a look back at his time here at the Times Union. Tell me, what were some of your favorite stories that you've written? Whenever I have to, like, whenever I'm applying for jobs or, you know, fellowships like these, I hate that process. One, because, you know, just innately it's it sucks. But also because you have to go back and read your clips. And it's always really painful. And I don't know how to answer that question because, like, uh, I'm sure, not, like, right now what comes to mind is a story I did about a young man who lives on First Street whose name is Anif Washington or a story about I, I did about a, a mom who was struggling with remote learning or this this segregation project that we have coming out soon. Uh, I'm sure if I went back and read those, I would think they suck. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you are so humble and modest. Those stories were all fantastic, and we have done um, several podcast segments on a number of things that you've done. So uh, I highly encourage listeners to go back um, and listen to those and to read your stories. Um, tell me, though, what mm-hmm. were your impressions of Albany? What were the things that you liked about reporting here? What were the things that maybe you didn't like or mm-hmm. you know, made things harder for you? Um, just just your overall impression of Albany and the capital region. I will always be so grateful to the city, I think. Um, I started here, obviously, in August of 2020, a year that was uh, atrocious for many reasons. Before that, I hadn't been working all summer because an internship I had lined up was done away with. And so for like two months in the summer, I was just doing nothing. And I felt so aimless and purpose, you know, without purpose. And it was just a dark period in my life. And so when I got here to Albany and started reporting, which meant meeting people and talking to people and asking questions and learning about their lives and enrich my life so much, you know? It, a lot of these stories that we do can be really depressing and, 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 and sad or infuriating. But at the end of the day, like, it's hard to complain because they just enrich me so much. And so I guess I'm just, what I'll take away from Albany is like how amazing the people are here, um, how rich the history is in this city. And how rich of a place this is for journalism. I didn't think I would find a place that was as amazing to do reporting as uh, Alabama, which is where I'm from. But uh, I mean, Albany's, Albany stacks up with it. And it's, it's I don't know, I'm, I think I'll just take away uh, memories of the people I spoke to and uh, just how grateful I am to them for uh, you know letting me ask a couple questions <laughs> and write about it. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> so tell me though, where did where were you before? I mean, I know you mentioned the summer, but like what were you doing prior to, you know, that summer? What was your re- reporting experience? So I graduated from a school in Alabama called Auburn University in May 2020. Um, and so I graduate knowing that I want to do journalism in the way that everyone who graduates college kind of know, thinks they want to do what they majored in, you know, like, yeah, I like journalism, but I'd only done it for college paper, which not to diminish it, the Plainsman where I worked at was a great paper. And I'd only interned in San Francisco for like seven weeks, I think, which was a great experience. But those are very limited experiences. I think I just realized how lucky I was to be employed and to have a job where uh, the only thing asked of me was to write about what was happening as truthfully as possible. And isn't that just like amazing? that? <laughs> that I was getting paid to call people and ask if I could talk to them and then write what they said. Like, that is just unbelievable. Um, And I'm sure this, you know, shiny optimism will maybe fade away a little bit as I work more in this field. 
But at least for my first year working full time in the thing that I majored in journalism, I think I just have a lot of comfort knowing that this is definitely what I want to do for as long as I can. That's a wonderful feeling. Now yeah. that that you know kind of dovetails nicely into my next question, which is mm-hmm. your style of reporting. You have a very like beautiful narrative style of reporting that you don't often see in daily newspapers. I mean, we certainly have wonderful writers who 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 do do this, but your work, you know, in the past year was marked by this. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your style and why you approach stories that way? So the stories that I am haunted by that I'm obsessed with are the stories where like you're reading them and the quotes aren't really reporter prompted the quotes are like natural dialogue they're things that people are saying to one another and to you know without the reporter having to prompt them for an answer um and so I I just love stories where it's clear that a reporter is following along and is spending hours or days with them don't you think that just gets to a more organic truth sometimes with some stories you know like I just think that's remarkable to to be afforded to do that and so I've been reading these stories from people like Eli Saslow and Stephanie McCrumman of the Washington Post and Hannah Dreyer uh, a reporter from San Francisco Lizzie Johnson comes to mind who do these amazing uh, stories where they, they kind of just embed with people I figured I would try my hand at trying to do some of that I don't know how successful I was but I, I know that it it is so amazing that experience to follow them around i mean that's that's pretty special to to be there like one one that comes to mind is it's one thing to to hear that parents are struggling with remote learning and that's kids are struggling but remember when i was following this woman named michaela cardial uh and i was in her home masked i should say um but in her home and her son had his first test of his life he's in first grade and to hear like how stressful they were and, and to be able to put that dialogue they had back and forth and how tense it was for them in the story. I mean, I just think that's a great window into what it's actually like. Absolutely. Beautifully written. And, you know, most recently we had talked on this podcast about a story that you did on uh, the local city mission uh, in Albany, where they were attempting to, you know, vaccinate as many homeless people as possible, uh, you know, in a very tight time frame because the vaccines were going to expire. And you talked about what went through your head while you were there, because initially it was, a, you know, it was a press event, which sometimes can be, I don't, I wasn't at this particular one, but you know well that sometimes they can be pretty canned and, <laughs> you know, not very personal. And uh, you talked about how you kind of saw the guy over in the corner who was working furiously to, to get this done. And you, you kind of embedded with him a little bit. And I just thought that was so profound. Selfishly, that was just so much more exciting to follow him around, and I wasn't as interested in what the sheriff was saying. I was, I was interested in what this guy was doing, sweating and <laughs> running around the building. Yeah, it really came through in the writing. Um, so again, if you're listening and uh, you're interested in that story more, we have a previous episode um, where you recorded some audio of the experience and it really takes you inside it. So let me ask you now, last question mm-hmm. here: uh, What are you moving on to, and you know, what are your hopes for the future uh, with a career in journalism? Yes, so um, I got another fellowship at another paper, and I will be doing breaking news uh, and being there for a year. Uh, And after that, I hope to get a full-time job finally (laughs) and hopefully be allowed to to keep shuffling away from fellowship to fellowship and to have a full-time job I think would be great. And then I can say I knew you when, you know, you get your Pulitzer, so. Well, no, not that, but... (laughs) Thank you.
Racehorse Medina Spirit won the Kentucky Derby in an exciting race earlier this month. But after the victory, the Thoroughbreds drug test came back positive for the regulated substance betamethasone. The revelation rocked the horse racing world and resulted in a ban this year for famous trainer Bob Baffert at Churchill Downs. However, Medina Spirit was cleared to race in the Preakness Stakes this weekend, pending the results of another drug test. That keeps his Triple Crown hopes alive, for now. Times Union horse racing writer Tim Wilkin has been following the drama, and I checked in with him from his post at the Pimlico Racetrack in Baltimore. Can you break it down for me? Like, there, there's a lot going on. Like, what are what are the main takeaways from what's happening in horse racing right now? The main story is the Kentucky Derby winner. Now, Bob Baffert, the trainer of Kentucky Derby winner Medina Spirit, is without question the face of horse racing. Yes, and, we've heard about him a lot in the in the podcast segments that you've done. He he played and, a big and, role. People that don't follow racing know who Bob Baffert is. Part of it's because, you know, he's got the silver hair, he's got the sunglasses, and he's very, very successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's won the Triple Crown twice. He won it with American Pharaoh in 2015. He won it with Justify in 2018. He won the Kentucky Derby two weeks ago. That was his seventh one. That was a record. Wow. But the Sunday after the Kentucky Derby, the report came out that Medina Spirit failed a drug test. He tested positive for a regulated substance called Bethamasone. I'm probably butchering that name, but it's close. Technically, it's it's to help a horse's sore joints. 21 picograms were found in his the blood sample that they took. A picogram is like one trillionth of a of a gram. It's very small. I mean, then again, this this drug isn't banned. It's regulated. It's supposed to be out of a horse's system. 14 days before he runs. And Bob said that he didn't know how the horse got it. And he said this horse had never been treated for that. Hmm. But then it came out just a couple of days ago that Medina's spirit was being treated for dermatitis, which is a skin irritation, with an ointment called Automax. And it had this betathosome in it. And the Bob erred by not realizing his vet Narian suggested they give him this, this horse that, and somebody screwed up because the vet should have known, or Bob should have known, or somebody should have known that this could not be given to the horse because the last time it was given to the horse was the Friday before the Kentucky Derby. And I've seen the horse up close and he does have a skin rash. It's not like he was ingesting anything. It was like they were rubbing this, this ointment into the horse's body. And obviously, some of it gets into his bloodstream by rubbing it into his skin. Sure. So, you know, right after that, Churchill Downs, where they run the Kentucky Derby, announced that, well, we're going to take a second test. And if this second test comes back positive, we're going to disqualify you from your win in the Kentucky Derby. And that is huge, huge news because... Has that ever happened before? In 1968, it happened. The horse that got disqualified, it took four years before it became official. So this could drag on for a long time because it will go to the courts. You know, it's just a very, very bad look for race. Bob was suspended by Churchill Downs. He's not allowed to run any horses in his name at Churchill Downs right now. And that's when 
Maryland Jockey Club, they had to decide whether they were going to let Medina Spirit run in the Preakness or any of Bob's horses. And that opened up another can of worms because there's a, Bob has another horse running in the Preakness named Concert Tour. And now if they were to say, okay, we're not going to let Medina Spirit run or any of Bob's horses run, Concert Tour has done nothing wrong. And the rub here too, Concert Tour is owned by a couple named Gary and Mary West. They owned a horse named Maximum Security, who in 2019 won the Kentucky Derby and then was disqualified for interference in the race and the most controversial Kentucky Derby of all time. Wow. So, and I mean, I'm sure that if they had not allowed Concert Tour to run, Gary West would have raised holy hell and gone to the highest courts to make sure his horse was able to run. Wow. But the Maryland Jockey Club announced, okay, we're going to let these Bob Baffert horses run in the Preakness. But there's an asterisk there. There's a but. He can run, but these horses have to be, they're going to be tested. The blood samples have already been taken. They were taken on Tuesday. The test results are supposed to come back. If there's any substance in any of Bob's horses after this test, they can't run. Bob has said the last time his horse, Medina Spirit, was treated with this betamazone was the day before the Kentucky Derby, which was May, April 30th. So if it takes 14 days for that to pass through a horse's system, it probably is still in his system when they took the, the test on Tuesday. And if the test comes back, you know, positive on Friday, he'll have to scratch the horse and he won't be able to run in the pre the Kentucky Derby winner will not be able to run in the Preakness. If you had to put money on the outcome, what do you think, what do you think will happen? You don't know how quickly something passes through a horse's system, just like it would be with a human. I mean, I'm just saying there's a chance that this could happen. I hope it doesn't because, and I feel for the poor horse, he didn't do anything wrong. He, he right. just did nothing wrong. That's why, like I said, it's just one big mess down here. He's in a no win situation. If Medina Spirit wins, everyone's going to say, well, he must still be on something. And if he loses, they're going to say, well, he can't win without the drugs in him. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be taking a brief hiatus from the podcast next week, but we'll be back the week after with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by myself, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.